We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is The Future This Week. On Sydney Business Insights, I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kai Rima. Every week we get together and look at the news of the week. We discuss technology, the future of business, the weird and the wonderful, and things that change the world. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Today on The Future This Week, Mona Lisa's fake smile, more digital humans, and missing platform competition. I'm Sandra Peter, I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima, professor at the Business School and leader of the Digital Structure Research Group. So Sandra, what happened in the future this week? Well, lots of dead people seem to be coming back to life. One of the stories on BBC this week was that Mona Lisa has been brought to life with deepfake AI. So we're talking, of course, about the very famous Mona Lisa painting, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, which has now been animated using artificial intelligence by a group of researchers coming out of Samsung's AI research lab in Moscow. The BBC reports that, of course, it's not just the Mona Lisa. The researchers also brought back to life Salvador Dali, Albert Einstein, Fyodor Dostoevsky and Marilyn Monroe. Exactly. So this is the latest installment in the rise of the digital humans. We have, of course, talked about this on a number of occasions before. Just about a year ago, we talked about little Michaela for the first time, and she's making headlines this week as well. We've talked about AI news anchors in November 2018. And we, of course, had a special on Virtual Mike, which we aired last year off the back of our Vivid event in 2018. Now, bringing back to life these personalities and a picture for this matter raises a few questions. The easiest one to answer is really how have they done this? Because what well, the technology that researchers have used to animate Mona Lisa really relied on training an algorithm to understand facial features and the way the face moves and the shapes that it makes. And they trained that on 7,000 images of celebrities from YouTube. And then they used that knowledge to animate one still picture of Mona Lisa. Also, over the last two weeks, we've seen quite a few stories about the Salvador Dali deepfake. And this is different to the way Mona Lisa was created in that there were many, many actual recordings of Salvador Dali, who died in 1989, that were used by the Dali Museum. This is in St. Petersburg, Florida, one of the museums with the largest collection of surrealist works. They've debuted a human-sized Salvador Dali on a huge screen where you can actually interact with a replica of Salvador Dali. So Salvador Dali actually speaks fully animated, a virtual replica of the man himself, talks about his life, his work, poses for selfies with the museum patrons, and then texts you those images. So quite a lively installation that supposedly brings back the real Dali. I... Do not believe in my death. Do you? As you can hear, they've also reproduced Salvador Dali's voice, which makes this almost indistinguishable from real recordings of Salvador Dali, which brings us to the second question, not only how can you do this technically, but who gets a say in what Salvador Dali says after his death? So as we now gain the digital technology to bring back to virtual life 
people who are deceased, such as celebrities, painters, movie stars, politicians. The ethical question that underlies all of this is, how do you recreate the personality? How do you decide what this person would have said when we can now involve these digital humans, replicas of actual people in conversations, in installations, talking about their life, and go places in conversations where these people might not have gone in recordings. So you could use this for educational purposes. It would be wonderful to study history alongside Napoleon or from Winston Churchill. But on the other hand, there's also the potential to misuse this technology. And to recreate history, basically. We all know that we relate well to other people, to faces. And when we recreate these digital humans, we're creating a very convincing medium through which the author who creates these installations and controls these virtual humans can talk to audiences and large audiences potentially on the internet, not just in museums, to then have people basically say whatever the author wants. Which brings us straight to another story that came out last week in which AI recreated the voice of podcast host Joe Rogan and actually did make him say anything they wanted. I've decided to sponsor a hockey team made up entirely of chimps. I'm tired of people telling me that chimps are not capable of kicking human ass in sports. Chimps are just superior athletes. And these chimps have been working out hard. They're throwing kettlebells, battle ropes, everything. I've got them on a strict diet of bone broth and elk meat. These chips will rip your... Oh shit, I think we better stop this here. Technology is now so advanced that with only a few seconds of someone's voice, and admittedly there's hours and hours of Joe Rogan out there, he's the host of one of the most popular podcasts ever. Usually episodes that are three and a half hours long, so anyone complaining about the length of our podcast, just saying... The point here is that you could make anyone say anything you wanted. And indeed, my students in my class have created a version of the future this week with me asking questions that I've never asked before using free software available on the Internet. And clearly, we need to upgrade our tech here. So Megan could have created an episode last week when we both were unavailable. Well, that would be easier. <laughs> But the point here is that this technology can be used in all different ways. There was also a story of Google and Google Assistant, which can now translate what someone says and use their voice to actually speak the translation. The same technology being used as in the Joe Rogan example. And one more story on this topic again this week from People magazine, which reported on the Calvin Klein ad that faced really intense backlash. This was a Calvin Klein ad featuring human model Bella Hadid. And Lil Michaela, who we featured a number of times on the podcast before, the fully synthetically rendered Instagram influencer who has millions of followers taking fashion and life advice from, in quotes, her. And who in this latest Calvin Klein ad titled I Speak My Truth in My Calvin Kleins is seen sharing a long lingering kiss with Bella Hadid. Which is technically significant because here we, for the first time, have the 
fully digital human, so to speak, interact with the real human in a video. And so the boundaries between what is fake and what is real are quickly disappearing in audio recordings as in Joe Rogan, in bringing back deceased celebrities, or in having fully synthetic humans now appear in videos alongside real humans. And while we have seen this previously, of course, in movies and CGI, we're increasingly in a world where we can do this in real time off consumer technology. And this is exactly what we will be doing at Vivid Ideas next week. We urge you to join us. There are a couple of tickets left if you want to see this technology live and an in-depth conversation of some of the issues that we've just touched upon in this podcast. Join us at Vivid Sydney on June 7, 5.30 p.m. at the MCA, Museum of Contemporary Art. Join us for an in-depth conversation, a showcase of these cutting-edge technologies and a panel of experts from around the world. It will feature Michaela Ledwich. Mike Seymour, the real Mike, not the virtual Mike, Hao Lee from the University of Southern California in LA, and Sandra and myself. So come along to a in-depth discussion of the ethical, societal, business, economic implications of living with digital humans. And enough of that, I think we should move to our second story of today, which was a fascinating one. This is a topic that we've kept our eye on for the past few weeks, and we've always thought, ah, we can't talk about big tech and Facebook again, because we've just done a couple of stories around this topic. But it turns out that there is an angle which, frustratingly, for Sandra and myself, has been missed a number of times now in reporting. We thought we have to talk about this. This one comes off the back of yet another opinion piece in the New York Times talking about Facebook. Mind you, there's been a very widely discussed one a couple of weeks ago by Chris Hughes, one of the Facebook co-founders who called for breaking up Facebook and made a wide-ranging argument about why Facebook and the lack of competition that it faces has led us down this dark rabbit hole that is big tech these days. But the latest one makes the argument that privacy itself is an antitrust issue. So in the article we're starting with today, Dina Srinivasan, who is an antitrust scholar, argues that there is an antitrust case to be made against Facebook on privacy grounds. Privacy, unlike things like price gouging or price discrimination or exclusive dealing, privacy is not one of those things that you would immediately think of or recognize as an antitrust violation. So this harks back to a discussion we've had previously on the podcast about how the thinking around monopolies and antitrust law in the US is slowly shifting. And we featured Lena Khan, a postgraduate student who has written a influential thesis around the topic, recovering an older, almost forgotten interpretation of antitrust law and the role of monopolies, which argues that it's not just the price effect for consumers, which in Facebook's case, because the service is free, would never actually come to bear, but that other issues can also feature in antitrust thinking. And so the argument goes to privacy. So the author makes the case that Facebook has usurped our privacy with the help of its market dominance. 
the argument goes that whilst the price of Facebook has always stayed the same, it's always been free to join and it's always been free to use, the cost of using Facebook to us, and that would be calculated in the amount of data we have to give up to Facebook in order to use the free service, would be an order of magnitude over what it used to be. So today when you sign up to Facebook, you have to allow it to track your activity across the article reports more than 8 million websites and other mobile applications on the internet. And the thing is that you cannot opt out of this tracking. You can opt out of what Facebook can do with that data, but not of the actual tracking. And it goes so far that even if you leave Facebook and shut down your account, Facebook will keep tracking you across the internet and collecting data about you. It's actually even worse because the moment you do leave Facebook, you no longer have access to the settings that would tell Facebook in what ways it can use your data. And so Dina makes the argument that while price is not the factor here, that this invasion of privacy and the way in which Facebook works with that data that it collects about us amounts to a degradation in service or quality of the service, which then goes straight to the antitrust argument. And also harks back to many of the points that Hughes, one of the founders of Facebook, that he raised in his article where he highlights over and over again the fact that there is this lack of competition that has enabled Facebook to become so complacent and really disregard the wishes of its users. Or squash competition among startups, which is another angle that has often been brought up when it comes to Facebook and big tech more generally. And here is where we want to pause. Because... Surprisingly to the both of us, the main point that the use article and number of other articles that have appeared since and the latest one seem to be missing is that the privacy invasions that we find on Facebook are not the result of a lack of competition, but the result of quite intense competition. So let me say this again. We're arguing that actually it is not the competition that a company like Facebook would face from other social media networks, from Instagram or from WhatsApp. It's actually the competition based on their business model that we should be looking at. And in that respect, Facebook faces really, really intense competition. And the breaches in privacy that we're seeing are a direct result of the competition that it faces. Once we acknowledge what the product is that Facebook sells for money, and everyone knows this, it's advertising, it becomes pretty clear that there is intense competition with Google as the main competitor and that the way in which the product that is being built, the targeted advertising that is being sold to corporations, depends directly on how well Facebook can actually learn everything about their users, hence exploit their privacy. It becomes clear that competition is the actual driver of privacy invasions. And I feel this is almost a big enough insight to stop the podcast right here, but we want to go a little bit further. So what we're saying here is that the issue that we need to be looking at is not the lack of competition, but the very intense competition, hyper competition at the back end of these platforms. And the answer to that is not breaking them up, but rather regulating them. Which interestingly might also be missing the point because there's yet another layer of competition that seems to have been overlooked. And this is, again, an argument for there being a lot of competition. None of these articles actually go into discussing the other big 
tech competitors. The conversation seems to be restricted to social media companies and platform services that are coming out of Silicon Valley, completely missing the fact that there are internet giants of that size, some of which are direct competitors coming out of China. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached. We're talking, of course, about companies like TikTok. We've recently done a podcast on this. TikTok is a social media network with as many users as Facebook. And it's currently the most popular social app in the US. And it is, of course, coming out of China, owned by Chinese company ByteDance. And of course, more on this in our recent 100th episode of The Future this week, where we discuss the story of Lil Nas X. And have recently also done the Yeehaw Challenge. We'll put this silly video in the show notes. But coming back to the intense competition, all of the discussions about breaking up Facebook, breaking up Amazon completely miss the fact that there will be competition from companies that are rapidly growing out of China. And just to give you some numbers there. So big stats coming up. Just over the last five years, China has produced more than 34 unicorns, that is private companies valued at more than $1 billion. And this is fueled by a number of things, chief amongst which there are 700 million users and climbing using the internet in China. There is a flood of private venture capital investment and a huge, huge state-backed funding and state-supported incubators assisting this ecosystem in China. So companies such as ByteDance with TikTok, but also increasingly WeChat and others are expanding their business beyond China into places like Africa, Australia, the Western world, the US, Europe more broadly. And think not just social media companies, but also companies like Didi, which have taken on Uber successfully in many jurisdictions, or companies like Huawei, which are actually at the center of very big trade debates at the moment. So for Facebook, this means that rather than looking at it in a narrow way, arguing that it is a lack of front end competition in the market for social media that is at the heart of the many problems that we see, we should recognize that not only is the competition at the back end the driver for privacy abuse, Facebook is also increasingly confronted with new competition from Chinese competitors that actually operate with a very different business model. Which also makes them extremely well-suited to compete with companies like Facebook and Google in the space. Because whilst a company like Facebook would have over 98% of its revenue coming from its advertising business, a company like Baidu or Tencent would have only a very small amount of their revenue coming from advertising. The rest would be from financial services that it offers, from entertainment and so on. So a much more diversified business model, which is a lot more robust in terms of its exposure to competition for advertising revenue. So what we're saying is there's a whole new angle to this whole big tech conversation emerging, the implications of which we're only now beginning to understand. And we want to finish on two observations here. Now, first of all, TikTok, because of the different business model, does not face the same issues as Facebook regarding privacy invasion. Or the same level of scrutiny. On the other hand, you as regulators might be made uneasy by the fact that this is a Chinese-owned company that now is part of the lives of millions of 
US citizens or indeed citizens in other countries such as Australia. And there has been a recent case with a Chinese company acquiring Grindr, which is currently being reversed in the US courts. So in 2016, the Chinese company Beijing Kunlun Tech bought 60% of US dating platform Grindr completing a buyout early last year, but the government has now decided that this transaction is actually a threat to U.S. national security, and hence Kunlun is expected to shortly sell Grindr at an auction. The point being here that the Grindr app, for example, allows location tracking of people, finding, matching people on the basis of their preferences, and the argument being made that should Chinese-owned companies have ownership of such data about U.S. citizens, that might raise national security issues. So it remains to be seen what is the case with companies such as TikTok, which are fully owned Chinese companies. And it also remains to be seen what are the economic consequences of breaking up big tech in the West, where there is significant competition from places like China. So platform competition will be a topic that we will return to in future episodes, and not only because of the Chinese angle, but also because platform competition turns out to be a much more interesting and multifaceted topic than is often portrayed in straightforward antitrust opinion pieces, for example. But I think that's all we have time for today. Again, come see us live at the Vivid on June 7th at the Museum of Contemporary Art. Enjoy an evening of ideas and lights. See you soon. On the future. Next week. This week? Yes, but next week. On the future this week. Next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was The Future This Week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group. And every week right here with us, our sound editor, Megan Wedge, who makes us sound good. And keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden houses by Lindsay Pollack. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi at sydney.edu.au. Thank you.